Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Nicks? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. How's it going? Are you guys all right? I'm not home. That's why it sounds like this. I got out. I had to get out. It was scary getting out, but I got out. I definitely got out. I had, uh, I'm, I'm recording right now in a casita uh, behind a house outside of Taos Village in New Mexico, where I grew up, not in Taos. I grew up in New Mexico. I felt I needed to do something. Monkey was gone. He was sort of keeping me tethered to the house so I could care for him. Lynn obviously is gone. And also, I, I wanted to point out that today, I might as well do this now, So, because I think I need to do it. Uh, today, it would have been Lynn Shelton's 55th birthday. Happy birthday, Lynn. You are missed dearly, desperately, sadly, in all ways, missed. And uh, it's just a fucking, it's ridiculous. What a goddamn ripoff to everybody alive that that woman is not here. Really. So much more life could have been had with or without me. But in, in bringing up her birthday, I do want to say that there is something that has been set up in her honor uh, by her father and her uh her husband, her ex-husband, uh, it's to uh, it's a fund at the uh, school where their son went, where Milo went. Uh, it is the um, it's it's a school for people who have uh, hearing impairment. You can go donate. It would be a nice thing to do if you go to northwestschool.com/slash/donate. You'll see right there at the top the Shelton Seal Family Fund, um, and it, it was set up in honor of of Lynn and her son Milo and, and the school that helped them so much. Northwestschool.com slash donate. The Shelton Seal Family Fund is something you can do that's proactive and very specific and helps uh, very specific people in a very big way. Uh, you're very missed, Lynn. Also, a little more Lynn news. If you go, we did a big uh, tribute uh, to Lynn and her television work for American Cinematheque last night or the night before last, live, um, it was a panel. It was me and John Hamm and Reese Witherspoon, Michaela Watkins, Eddie uh, Wang, Kerry Washington. It was great. It was great. You can go to American Cinematheque. That's cinema, T-H-E-Q-U-E, American Cinematheque. 
com and uh, go to their virtual programming. So it's, you know, slash virtual dash programming. And they got a Herzog thing tonight, it looks like, or last night. But there it is. Lynn Shelton tribute virtual Q&A. It's also on YouTube, but that'll get you to the YouTube, I believe. And it looks like they got a lot of cool stuff on there. Free plug. A free plug for American Cinematheque. They deserve it. They got a couple of outlets that aren't operating, a couple theaters. So that being said, oh, by the way, did I mention Billy Crudup is here on the show? Billy Crudup is on the show today, uh, and this is the first time I've ever pronounced it Crudup instead of Crudup, which is wrong. So it's Crudup, and he's here. I talked to him back uh, in the house on the, uh, on the computer, and it was pretty great. It, uh, it was a pretty great conversation. So look, I couldn't leave my house because Monkey was ill. And I, and I kind of made a promise to myself that when Monkey passed, or when I passed him, <laughs> when, when I helped him out into the final, the final frontier, the big leap, uh, that I would uh, try to get away. Because I've been, I've been home, like many of you, for, for months on end, however long it's been, since March, mid-March, the end of March. Pretty much home, except for a drive to Malibu with Lynn one day. But home, eating at home, cooking at home. Granted, some takeout had been happening. People were sending me food, but everything was being done in the home, in the house, where Monkey was sick, where Lynn was sick, where, you know, I don't have, you know, my house is not haunted with grief, but I am haunted with grief. And I didn't know if it was possible. Was it possible? Is it possible to to go out and be in the world? Here's what I did. I got it in my head. I needed to go somewhere. I couldn't fly anywhere really and, and feel okay because you know me. I'm getting fucking COVID tests every two weeks or so just because. You know, it's, I'm being safe, but uh, I, I'm just, I'm a little nuts, a little paranoid. But I, I mean, I, I, I don't know that I'm getting less so, but I, I decided I should come home. I should go to New Mexico. That would ground me. That would, you know, ground my heart. That would ground my mind i would get up into northern new mexico maybe i could go to taos specifically and just get up into the hills into the mountains into that air into those into the into that sky into the big frequency that i talked about i need to tap into the big frequency so what i did was i joined airbnb which i'd not been on i never went to airbnb ever i'd always go to hotels i don't know i was airbnb adverse for years but for some reason i'm just like fuck it i'm gonna join and uh, I made the reservation and the woman who owns the house got back to me and said, I don't know why they let you do this. I, I don't usually accept reservations from uh, from people who have not been on the platform before for newbies, I guess I would be. Uh, you didn't uh, put any bio info. You, there's no picture. I don't know anything about you. Um, so I'm not I'm not sure I'm comfortable with this reservation. I'm like, holy fuck, what did I do? So I wrote her. Uh, I messaged her back. I said, look, I'm you know, I'm 50, I'm 56 years old. I don't drink. I don't smoke. Uh, I, I've just gone through some, you know, tragic loss in my life. I'm in the entertainment business. I'm a comic writer, podcast host, producer guy. Um, I'm, you know, I'm okay. I grew up in New Mexico. I was looking for, forward to coming home and maybe you know, regrouping a bit. And so I kind of rambled on a little bit and sent that off to her. And, you know, a couple hours later, she writes back, well, that was a little too much information. I really just needed a, a bio, uh, like, a, you know, like you'd put on a social uh, networking platform or a social media platform, whatever. I'm like, oh, okay, well, or I'll do that, but can I, can I come? <laughs> so she said, yeah, and I'm here, and it's lovely. It's great. 
but I had no idea just how terrified I'd be to leave the house, to get on the road, what to bring, plenty of hand sanitizers, all my different kinds of masks, uh, hats, my, uh, my, my uh, plexiglass face protectors. I, I just had no idea what it would be like to drive out of my five-mile radius. You know, I made a reservation at the uh, Marriott Courtyard in Flagstaff, and I'm like, what's, gonna, what's, what's it going to fucking be like there in Arizona? Is it going to be crazy? Are people going to be like not giving a shit? Is it just going to be, you know, just are there, am I just going to be on the highway with, you know, COVID pilgrims from all over the place out spreading the virus far and wide? What's happening? It was, I was terrified to leave and I knew other people were doing it. I knew that I had friends that were driving cross country and I was like, how are they doing it? And then I realized like, dude, just do what you do here. When you go to the supermarket, just do what you do here. You know, I told you, I think secretly between us that I have these two, you know, legit N95 masks that I covet. Uh, they were given to me by my friend Kit and, uh, and I covet them. I only use them when I go into supermarkets and stuff. They're not the casual, you know, hiking, hiking up the hill, walking outside, checking into a hotel. But if I'm going to spend some time in a place, I'll go full PPE and I'll put on a N95 and a face screen. So I'm driving. I'm fueled up. I'm scared to stop at fucking gas stations. It's crazy. And then, like, I don't know what it was, but just being in the hotel room. I'd, yeah, I spent a lot of my life in hotel rooms. And I, it just felt so alien. Five months I hadn't been in a hotel room, hadn't eaten anywhere but my house. I drove, I ordered uh, takeout at this, I think it was called Red Curry Thai or Red Pepper Thai or whatever. It was on the list of the seven restaurants you can eat at in Flagstaff. But all they're just doing takeout. Everyone's in a mask, ordered this t- vegan. It's all vegan, vegan curries and uh, some fried tofu. And I brought it all back to the room. And I don't know whether it was fear or, or just the excitement. I don't know what, what was going on, but it was like the best food I'd ever eaten in my entire fucking life. It was like the food of freedom or something. I don't know. Maybe it was the best Thai food ever. I don't, I'd probably not, but there was just something about not eating at home. <laughs> being out it was everything was all electrified it was great it was great food and i didn't know if that could continue but uh next morning i got up got out masked up hit the road again made it to albuquerque now here's where it gets sad because i'm going to my hometown i'm staying at los poblanos for the night they give me a beautiful suite but there's fires in northern new mexico so there's this there's this orange apocalyptic haze all over fucking New Mexico too, just like California. And I'm like, holy shit, you really can't get away. It really is over. What the fuck is happening? What is happening? It is happening. The plague is going, the fires are going, and I can't even get away from it in my hometown. I'm down the street from my house. I can't get away from it. It was so sad. I head up to see my dad. Didn't want to, did it anyway. Um, Spent 45 minutes in and out. Touched base, sat, told him I loved him talked to his wife, talked to him. They probably gave me COVID, uh, left. That was it. That was enough. And then, uh, the next day I drove to Santa Fe right when I got in, went to Tia Sophia's, got some, uh, enchiladas, green chili, chicken enchiladas with green chili for me and my buddy, Devin took him up to his house and I took a couple of bites and, and, you know, I hadn't seen Devin in a long time and he's a dear friend and we go way back and, uh, love the guy. But I don't know, you know, he just was sort of a yaw right. And I just taken a bite of my green chili enchilada. And I just, I, the, the tears just consumed me. Not because of the food, just because of everything. And I hadn't cried like that, you know, since the first week with my brother uh, after Lynn passed away. 
and I, and I kind of stifled it, but it happened for a minute, but it was like, it was so dramatic and so guttural and so out of nowhere that I almost lost a bite of my green chili enchilada, which I did not want to do, but it was, it was heavy, man, you know, but he was, you know, he was a good guy to, to be there for that. But we, you know, we talked and we hung out a bit and we, and I ate and then uh, I came up here and I checked into this place and it's so sweet. It's this beautiful little place up in the, in the foothills of Taos. Not not on the ski area side, but on the other side. You know, it was great. I'm just trying to clear my head. And I think Lynn, you know, and I don't believe this stuff, but why not? I was taking all kinds of pictures. I was so excited to be up and out and alone on the, usually I'm terrified of being eaten by animals or falling into a ditch and having to, you know, cut my, my own arm off with, with, a, with a shoe. You know, I, I just... But I just, I, I didn't have any fear these last couple of days. And I just went up and I just did it. And I thought about her. I thought about me. I thought about the future. I thought about, you know, what do I need to do for myself? What do I need to do for other people? What do I need to do for my country? A lot going on. But just the sadness, the sadness, the grief was, uh, was there. But it was like part of the frequency. It's part of the big continuity. It's part of the, the, uh, the, the momentum of humanity, the grief. It's weird, though, what I do to not feel feelings, you know, if I, whether it's listen to music or just sit around and think about all the horrible shit I've done in my life. There's, there's, that seems to be my, my body, my brain's way of dealing with having immediate feelings uh, in my brain. It's like you can have those and be sad or you can just, you know, maybe beat the shit up out of yourself for things you did before. How would that be for a while? That, that could go on, you know, for, you know ad infinitum, pal. Yeah, you you know you've changed your 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 who you are, but like let's go over the books. I'm like, can I just feel the grief? All right, all right, but you know, let me know when you want to crack these bad boys. I'm like, look, man, I've made my menses. <laughs> come on, come on, let let me up for air. But I did the breathing and I saw the views and I took the pictures and it's been just great. It really has. I'm reading a book on meditation. Well, I read the first few pages. I brought a guitar. I haven't played it yet, but you know. No pressure. I'm all right. I stopped in Arroyo Seco. Is that it? I think it's a little town just shy of the ski area. I bought some pots, bought some ceramics for my house, even though I might have to be moving in a hurry. Who knows, right? It was fucked up, though. I was in one of the pottery stores, and the guy said, you know, there's a whole family of Nazis just came in here in full uniform. I'm like, what? What are you talking about? He's like, well, they were wearing some kind of uniform. I think it was a white supremacist uniform. And I'm like, are you serious? They just came in like, you know, like nothing was happening. Yeah. And I was like thinking, get the fuck out of my store, white supremacist. I'm like, a family. He's like, yeah, that's fucking nuts. He's like, they might still be out there. Look around. I'm looking. It, there's nobody in this town. There's 12 people, some tourists eating tacos across the street, people wandering around with masks. It's a little tourist town. It's like five, 10 stores in a taco place, and it's up in the mountains. I'm like, what are the fucking white supremacists doing fully uniformed? A family. They weren't still there. And it's, uh, for some reason, I had to ask. I'm like, well, when they were in here, did they wear their masks? He's like, yeah, they they all wore their masks and they were, they were actually very nice. I'm like, well, that's how it's going to happen. That's what it's going to be like. You're just going to know. You're not going to say anything. You're going to be scared and they're going to be very nice and follow the rules. And, you know, we have to follow their rules. Jesus Christ. And by the way, the air is actually a little clearer here and it rains up here in Taos every day. It kind of cleans the, the palate of the, uh, of the big frequency. 
I'm okay. Are you guys okay? So Billy Crudup, not Crudup, uh, of course, you know him from Almost Famous. It's our big reunion. I haven't, I haven't, I haven't spent any time with Russell since, uh, since, uh, since my equipment fucking shocked him back in the day. So he's, you know, you know him from that movie, Almost Famous, Watchmen, his many shows on Broadway, The Morning Show, which he's nominated for an Outstanding Supporting Actor Emmy this year. That's happening. That's why he's on the show. Also, I might, I, I might want to tell you that uh, he, he, he's a little punchy. He'd been up all night, and he's, I think he seemed pretty caffeinated. And, uh, and we got to talking, man. We got to some serious talking. So again, he's nominated for playing Corey Ellison on The Morning Show in the category of Outstanding Supporting Actor in a Drama Series. You can watch all of season one of The Morning Show on Apple TV+. And this is me and Billy Crudup uh, coming up. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school, or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature, and now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Fox Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Fox Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey! Wow, man, nice to see you, man. It's been a while. Uh, it has been, <laughs> it's been a while. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it has been a while. That's that is true. When did when did we make that movie, Billy? Geez, hard to remember right now. Somebody, some people seem to suggest it was twenty years. Oh, that's right. There was a big anniversary that I wasn't invited to. 20 years. <laughs> you were uh, you were invited. You just weren't available, man. You've got this thing going and it keeps you busy. That is not that is not true. <laughs> I could have come and recaptured my amazing two minutes on screen. I, I have this memory. I don't know if it's invented or not, but of watching you and Noah do that fight from inside the bus and it being one of the more entertaining parts of that uh, experience. He he made us do it like ten times. I know. And every I, I remember Noah's voice getting shot too, and it was right. done for like a week and a half. Wow. Oh my god! He made us. He, there was several versions of it where Noah comes out. He every time, I think he was on the bus telling Noah to do shit to fuck me up. So like one time he came out and broke a guitar. Another time he showed his ass. <laughs> I remember the showed his ass part. I had forgotten about that. Oh, what a fantastic <laughs> memory! That's really crazy. <laughs> that was crazy. Yeah. Yeah, that was a that was fun. That was a long time ago and everybody was so deep in it. I remember that. I mean, I come on for one day and uh you guys were acting like a real band. Yeah, it felt it it was a totally immersive experience, I'll tell you that. From the second we we all said yes, Cameron had us in band camp 
and was the um the mind meld was like instituted immediately where we had to, he wanted to make sure that all of us non, well, for me in particular, because I was not a band guy, the other three were that we were all part of the same thing. And um, I didn't fuck it up. They'd all, all the other guys had been in bands. Yeah. Um, Jason uh, too. Yeah. Mark. Um, well, I know Mark. Band, yeah, the Red house painters and, um, yeah, our our drummer jump was the session drummer for him occasionally, and then Jason right. Lee. You know, I I don't know if he ever had a formal band, but he played the guitar. You know, he could sing. Yeah, he was the he was actually the weirdest to me. Jason out was? of all of them. Yeah, the character or the person. I I couldn't tell. You know, I I you know I projected a lot into it. You know, I I I felt distinctly like he was uh, shutting me out, and I thought, well, maybe I'm one of those. Um, negative people that uh, Scientologists are afraid of. So I, I thought that might be it. <laughs> I, I, then, I personally, I liked it very much. We, we got along per, uh, perfectly well. Like, uh, and the, the antagonistic relationship that developed was really enjoyable to play. But it wasn't real. No. no oh, no, not at all. I, I can't do anything for real. It's all, it's all fake, man. This is like, uh, I, I, really? I, I don't know how to play guitar. I mean, this, yeah. I, as you can see, this is real. Um, you can but, do this. Yeah. Uh, the, the whole acting part of it, you know, some people they get, you, you use the word immersive. Um, yeah. for me, it, that's all about the content and the story. You get immersed in the storytelling of it, not actually personally immersed in the experience of it. Sometimes there are, you know, residual effects because you trick your right. body long enough that it fires the chemicals it's supposed to fire. And then you feel emotionally hung over the next day. It's a real effect of, you know, like going through some of the uh, traumatic parts of playing a character, some of the connections, you know. Well, that's interesting. So you don't really now like to, to go back to Jason. Like, I think that his reaction to me was appropriate for the character. I thought everybody handled me for my little part there, which is you're killing us. Get the fuck out of our way. Well, that and just, you know, I was a promoter and yeah, I, the band is not going right. to be the pal of the promoter, but right. you know, but me, Mark Marin, was just this insecure idiot who was there for a day's work and uh, wandering around saying hi to people. And, uh, you know, the saddest part for me was that, you know, I had a shoot like, you know, I felt like part of the crew there for a while, part of the team. You know, yeah, Cameron even ate with me and my wife at the time. And then, like, when I had to chase the van, the bus and the cart, everybody left. It was just me and a secondary crew, B team, just me riding up and down that ramp by myself in the middle of the fucking night. And I'm like, this is show business. What happened to everybody? No, we, we were there in spirit, man. We were there. You know. <laughs> yeah. I know how it works now. That's right. I, I get like, it. I'm off camera. Get me the fuck out of here. I'm back to my of course. Uh, hotel. Why would anyone stay? I just had to suck, I suck up that uh, bus. Actually, that, that is a pet peeve of mine. And sometimes producers, they, there's a bait and switch um, where they'll tell you you're not needed. And then the next day you show up and the actor's like, so you don't do off camera and oh, like, right. what are you fucking talking about? But I, I there, 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 if this, this would have been a, a scenario where I would have said, we're on the bus. Yeah. The windows are closed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if Mark needs me on the bus, I'll stay yeah. up. Sure. Just no the, problem. That's how I connect, man. I need to know that all that emotion is still Feeling on the bus. It's riding away. Yeah. yeah you can, I gotta you feel can, it. you'll be able to uh, sense my seething emotions uh, yeah. from inside the bus. But that, but that's interesting that, well, I mean, I, I know that's a thing I, I'll do. I will always do off camera too. I mean, I guess sometimes 
you know, not not that I do a lot of acting, but I do more now. But I, you know, it, it seems like the right thing to do unless, you know, it's really nothing. I, I It almost always seems like the right thing to do, not the least of which, because the whole I feel like the whole bait and switch of doing a movie or a play or TV show, whatever, is, uh, you know, convincing the audience that everything is happening for the first time. Um, right. when it's highly choreographed and you've collaborated on the narrative together and you're just simply executing it as craftspeople. And if, to like to, to that way of thinking, I want to be in on it. So yeah. I want to influence your performance. I want you to influence my performance. So if you say you don't need me for off camera, I'm like out of the fuck. I don't, I don't know what I'm doing there. Right, right. Well, I mean, I think I was talking to Rob Reiner or James Brooks. I don't know who about Jack Nicholson on the set of A Few Good Men, you know, in the scene where he's in the witness box. Right. And he goes off. Right. Yeah, even when he was off camera, he did it all the way. Right. All the way. Yeah. I and think- uh, and I, I, I think it was Reiner because I think Reiner directed it. So why, why do you why do you do it? Why do you keep doing it all the way? Because because I because I love to act, man. <laughs> I, I couldn't agree more. It's 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 such a privilege. And when it and when you're firing, when you're yeah. like, I mean, that scene obviously became iconic for him too. Right. So that must have been incredibly fun to to play. But when you're yeah. firing with people, there's no greater joy. Most of most actors slog to get any work at all. You know, much less right. something they enjoy, much less something that they feel is important to be a part of. You know, like all of those things are. It's, it, there's so many layers to this profession that you know. I'm sure the people that you speak to are all uh, occupying a certain echelon that, like those those worries are long gone. But for me, you know, I, I went to acting school with, um, you know, eighteen twenty people who were really good young actors and. Th- uh, so many of them now don't work at all. And so many of the ones that do work, work in things that are unsatisfying. There are, are you know, a handful that get good opportunities and are given the opportunity to exploit them and move on and have great, yeah. you know. But the abundance of good fortune that I've had um, is absolutely apparent to me at every stage. And you have gratitude. Um endless stores of gratitude yeah uh, <laughs> i don't know I, I don't i don't i don't know how people do it i don't know how you guys do it because you, you, you i don't know how you go on doing it without getting a break or without getting opportunities because you're, you're showing up you're, you're auditioning to do somebody else's bidding and you're hoping that that bidding is good at least well written to some degree and and if it isn't you got to suck that up and make the best of it and and sometimes it's you're you're well, the one thing I noticed about acting when I started to do it more for the TV show, I'm like, with TV acting, you know, you you do a thing and it's like two seconds. You get it, you know, you're on camera. It's like, hey, wait. All right, cut. Let's turn the cameras around. And it's like, what the fuck is that? That's a day? Yeah. And there was actually a, a moment where I was like, this is fucking ridiculous. I, I'm just sitting around watching The Sopranos on my phone for four hours. But but I've grown to be a little more grateful. <laughs> but, none, but I guess what I'm leading towards is that it sounds to me that your that your 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 process is not all immersive to the point where you're going to convince yourself that you've become a character. And I imagine that doing theater kind of knocks the uh, the kind of pragmatic working element. The, the sort of like I'm a working actor guy. Like I think theater really is what must define what feels good about acting. Well, I, I have had that experience. It's true. And it, 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 it was, it was the philosophy was instilled in me before that. 
And the reason for that gratitude is in no sh um, small part because of the abundance of opportunities I had early in my career. I actually felt bad about it. I felt bad about telling some of my peers about like the great jobs that I was getting. And like, I, you know, I was six months out of school and I was playing one of the leads in a Tom Stopper play um, on Broadway directed by Trevor Nunn at Lincoln Center. And like I was originating the American part of it. Nobody gets to fucking do that. I, I, I wanted to hide my head in the, in the sand. It was, I mean, not to mention the fact that I was shitting myself in, in everybody's company trying to accomplish that. Um, but the, the, um, we were taught about, um, and, and the reason I went to graduate school, originally, you know, I thought I might uh, teach because I didn't know anybody who was a professional actor. Well, the, 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 the great thing about actors is that, like, you can tell all your friends about this amazing opportunity. And, and because they're actors, you know they're not going to be bitter or resentful of you, which, <laughs> is, which is one of the great things about that community. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have to say... Um, I, I do have some anomalous experiences because me and my friends are incredibly supportive of each other. And I, I think this goes back to your point of theater, but I thought, also think it has to do with New York. So yeah. many of the actors that I came up with, um, Sam Rockwell, Josh Hamilton, um, Ethan Hawke, and then Joel Delafuente, John Conley, Carl Kenzel, all these guys from school, we all are still in touch and supportive of each other. We actually went through that version, each of us at different times with one another, where you know we we would just talk about how shitty it was that some people had you know these opportunities and how thrilled they were that other of us uh, others of us were having other opportunities and they like really would it's it it is different in Los Angeles right well I think it also sounds like that's a handful of guys and it seems like the the bitter nasty ones probably you just weren't friends with because you know. <laughs> There's got to be a few. We could only put up with them for so long, and they we sure, called us hurt over the years, possibly. Well, it's just like it just filtered out that way, you know. Well, it's a it, it is a pretty broad grouping, though. When I think of it now, like how many? There's got to be a good twenty um, people that I'm still in touch with and really supportive of, you know. Well, that's great. No, no, yeah. I mean, I you know maybe I'm just thinking of comics, or maybe I'm just thinking about me. I, I think I don't you know. could be I, thinking I, of comics because uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> but no, no, of course you're thinking about actors, and every time somebody gets a part that I really wanted, um, turning down the volume on the envy, you know, is, is really difficult. And what was the, what was the one time that you can remember where that was really like, was it something? What do you mean? Like today? For? I mean, this shit happens yeah. all the time. Mark, to you, like to your point before about the never ending series of potential, like crevasses you're going to fall into. It starts yeah. with, can you get the audition? Um, next, okay, if you get the audition, are you going to nail it in the audition? Are you then going to nail the callback? Are you going to do okay in the meeting with the director? All of those like are replete with things. But that you dude, can talk you're up. like, you're fucking. Oh no, I still audition. I still audition. Um, okay. Okay. But I, I mean, you do walk in. They're not like, who's this guy? Uh, <laughs> some of them are like, you're still <laughs> acting. That's great. Um, and I'm like, what? You don't care for the theater? Go fuck yourself. Um, but the, uh, but then after you get the part, then there's the question of executing the part, right? Because I've been fired from a job too. Once you execute the part, then it's a question of whether or not you're in the film. Then if you're in the right. film, it's a question of whether or not the critics like it. Then if the critics like it, it's a question of whether anybody goes and sees it. I mean, every sure. one of those things 
uh, can play with your sense of self-consciousness. Yeah, right. But a lot of them are out of your control, I imagine. They are, you, but getting to that point where you recognize that is really hard because you want to have, unless you're somebody who can write, I can't. I'm a completely interpretive artist. I need somebody to give me material. They need to tell me what the story is going to be. They need to uh, give me some perspective on how I can help them tell the story before I, I'll have any kind of creative um agency or insight like for so for people like me who are waiting for people that they respect to come to them it can sometimes be a long frustrating wait so sure saying that it's out of your control is one yeah. thing but being able to internalize it in a way that you're not immobilized uh, it's, it's all, yeah it's immobilized heartbroken yeah that's it that's where the community of uh, confederates comes in handy Sure. is you know we, we all lean on each other at different times well yeah and, and after a certain point that group of actors you've all been cut out of things you've all you know yep. done great things that were never seen you know you've all made mistakes and things that you took yeah and, and are out there so so you know, with age comes a certain amount of of humility yeah. that that must aid in the ability to go like fuck it they, that didn't work out. No question about it. That, in fact, I think that as we get older and discover that we, we know we know and have known less and less, the sense of humor seems to be um, oh. rising to the to the top. You know, no, it has to. It has to, or you just fucking implode. Yeah, you're dead but in let's, the water. Let's let's get back to that. The process of like, because I don't talk to. Well, I try to. You try to talk to actors about. You know how they do it, how they, you know, what their craft is. Or I used to do it a lot when I was starting to act more, so I could get free acting lessons. But you know what? What it comes down to is like, what is the, you know, the most effective way that these individuals, uh, on top of their natural talent to do it, are able to uh, pretend to be somebody else? So you know, how do you engage that? But it seems like you're kind of practical about it. Well, there's two different things you were talking about there. I was thinking about before too. It, it, yeah, like. I'm for the um, collective enterprise to create a cathartic event for people, right? That's what ultimately you're doing. You're having somebody pay $13, the same way when you're doing a comedy show, I'm gonna charge you 20 bucks and I hope this 10 minutes gives you a giggle or I'm gonna charge you 40 and I hope you laugh your ass off. You know, like that's, yeah. it's the same thing for- And we're all gonna charge you 75 and thank you for subscribing this season. We hope you enjoy the play. <laughs> yeah, you need the hearing aids there's you that version the... too um we've kept the theater alive for you so enjoy your nap um <laughs> i've 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 been in in plenty of those productions and by the way giving people good nap uh yeah, and i sure, feel sure. proud of that because sometimes nice long we, nap yeah sometimes we need nap um yeah. but the all right uh, so so the cathartic enterprise yeah, that's so one that, that is it, that's a comprehensible journey to me you know like yeah. i like being in a group of people doing it there's the other version of it which is some people are really really good and the event is watching the peacock the event is watching somebody display these skills in a radical way that uh, like takes you out of yourself um and right. you know that that's that happens in athletics i'm sure there are people um in, in comedy as well who just have an explosive kind of gift that so you're saying that sometimes even but that doesn't preclude the ensemble element that you're just the ensemble is in support of the peacock and you got to live with that fucking weirdness yeah exactly and then and that's all the time i mean and and <laughs> and people sometimes who 
have been a part of the ensemble before become the peacock for a moment. You got to navigate yeah. that moment. And I mean, all, yeah. all of us have been through it. But um, for the audience, I was thinking, you know, like sometimes I, I'll, I'll just I, I'll pay to go see a Meryl Streep movie, whatever she's doing. I don't know what the movie is, but of course that that's somebody who can fucking work. So you want to see the work. And um, but usually it's about the story, whether or not the story works, what, whether or not that's what I want to do to curate my evening. And that is the workman part of it that I was taught in school, which is you take your time going over the text, collaborating with the director, the other actor. You become very fastidious about how you understand your role in creating this event. And then you try to do that. You try to technically implement that in a way that makes it seem like it's happening. Right. Can't when you go when you watch Meryl Streep, though, can you see the work? I can't no. see the work. No. It's I mean, it's upsetting, you know, as somebody who uh, has spent a lot of time and money trying to figure figure it out. It is uh, it's disappointing and humiliating, but it, it is it, it's thrilling to see somebody you know, in the same way you see Jordan or anybody who has a rare kind of gift. Yeah. I don't know how he makes his body move like that, you know, in uh, processing information. Some people just, it just, it, it's natural talent. And she's both too, because she went to school as well and is highly trained in uh, theater and, uh, uh, and she can sing. It just doesn't end with her, but she can also collaborate, you know, uh, with people in, in, uh, in the way that I'm familiar with, but um, she does it on a different level. Have you worked with her? No. Why not? Um, nobody's asked once again. Have Mark. you been in, have you been in movies together where you just didn't have scenes together or no? I don't think so. No, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm not going to take that personally. The, um, I just showed my son, um, defending your life. You remember that Albert Brooks movie? Sure. Sure. I'm a sucker for Albert Brooks and certainly oh, yeah. was, you know, like in my family, he, he was, he was somebody that we all kind of, uh, yeah. enjoyed collectively. So, I was thrilled how much he he enjoyed Albert Brooks as well. But watching Meryl Streep's oh, yeah. uh, capability in even a comedy that um, you know is it, kind of a heightened fun comedy is yeah. it's 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 it, it's it's very hard to do. It's very hard. Yeah, to but do. it was like it was amazing. My recollection of seeing her in that movie was like she must be doing him a favor. They must be friends. <laughs> <laughs> Why the fuck is she in this movie? I bet she. I mean, I bet that she loved doing it. I mean, you know, for the first time, she didn't have to be tormented by like the death of a child. Right. right. Or, uh, How old's your kid? He's sixteen. Sixteen. Wow, that's kind of my my buddy's got a sixteen, a uh, fifteen year old. Sounds can be rough. Yeah. Um. <laughs> I I don't know how it was for you. Um. But when I was fifteen, I grew up in New Mexico, so we could drive by then. Uh, but yeah, when did you start I, driving 14 and nine months? You got your learner's permit, right? I started yeah. driving early too. I mean, I, don't, I didn't get my learner's permit until 15, but yeah. Where'd you grow up? Well, this was in Dallas. Uh, right. I, New Mexico, I guess it's the same. They're like, it's plenty of room. Yeah. Let the kids drive. <laughs> there was something what called a hardship. Hit? There was a hardship license. And I think it was mostly for family, families in rural communities who, if somebody was working, they needed to drive the kids to school or something. And, um, my parents were divorced at that point and my mom uh, was working. And so my brother turned 15 and um, got his uh, hardship license and was driving us around. And so, you know, I was a year and a half younger than him. And, 
And one day he decided to teach me and it was a stick shift Volvo station wagon. Nice. And I, I just remember viscerally learning how to deal with a clutch um, on a yeah, suburban that, it, Dallas like, street. That was the only thing. Like when I was a kid, it was like that you wanted like any idiot could drive a, an automatic. So like <laughs> when I got the opportunity to learn, I learned on a standard and I'm right. very happy. I haven't driven one in fucking years. I know. They're but great I know to how. Drive, though. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 there was a, uh, a pickup truck that my dad um, had one summer um, with the three it, on the tree. Yes. The, on, now that yeah, was a harder. That's a fucker to drive. I mean, yeah. you you feel yeah. like you've done something if you've made it through a day on that one. Right. They're scary and they kind of lurch around. Yeah, and, and a yeah. really loose clutch. You know, yeah. like you you uh -huh. don't know when the gear is kicking in. Really, you know, it could be like three feet of right. give. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Uh, so what? Your dad was a pickup truck guy. No, <laughs> no, he was uh, he was a businessman. Um, he he was um. He tried to do a lot of different things and, um, but you know, most consistently, uh, he, he was a bookie and a uh, loan shark. And, uh, I think this, this, um, this pickup was probably payment, um, at a certain point that then my brother and I were given use to, uh, drive. He obviously wasn't a high level bookie based on the pickup truck, um, he always tried to like find his way back into a normal way of, of, of doing business by buying products that were in the marketplace uh, that had failed in the marketplace. He'd buy the copyright and then he would try to remarket them. Like there was these um, umbrella hats. I don't know if you remember in like the late seventies, early eighties. I can that, picture them. Yeah. And um, so there, there was, you know, they came out with the rainbows on them or whatever, and they didn't really uh, work because how, why, why would anybody do that? But my dad thought, I know what I'll do. Um, I know Lou Brock, who's, it was a baseball player for, uh, sure. St. Louis, I believe. And, um, he was like, I'm going to get Lou Brock to endorse these and we're going to sell the Brock umbrella. And, uh, <laughs> sure enough, we had, you know, I, I don't know, 2000 of these things in the basement. So he was always trying to, he was an entrepreneur, but, and he, you know, he wanted his, Pet rock. That's what he. That's what he thought. No, of course, right, happen. right. If well, I can just get the pet. My mom is the one who is working, keeping everything together, um, uh, working in an advertising agency, and taking care of three um, kids in their teens, boys, three boys. So she's the hero in the uh, story of that. So, so when 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 he was a bookie, was he his own man, or was he working for someone else? Yeah, I suspect there was just someone else involved there. Mark, to your question, uh, <laughs> uh, and. Because it doesn't sound like your dad's got the muscle. Yeah, to... well, he did work with a uh, a man named Mr. O, who was a six foot four former boxer. Oh, okay, uh, so that was his guy. He had who Mr. Had a o to... named Bullet. Yes, and oh, I yeah. mean he carried a firearm, you know, uh, and all of it was very charming. Like he's a he was a really charming guy. He made it seem perfectly normal. When there was like you know a riot shotgun next to his bed one day, he was like, "Oh no, that's fine. Just don't touch it." <laughs> you kind of think, uh, "Is it fine?" Okay. Uh, man, it's, yeah, it I makes mean, me nervous. Makes yeah, me see, nervous. It's, I don't know why, but that thing, you know, it's it's loaded. You got you have you have stuff for it too. Um, all right. Yeah. Okay. Did you ever go out shooting? Um, not not with him. No, I don't think I ever mm. did. I was in I I I was in um the Boy Scouts, and I went to a, a camp, uh, a YMCA camp, uh, right. one summer, Shout two summers. You. 
where you know you do riflery and stuff but that's the about 22s the extent of my shooting exactly 22 rifles but i so guess wait, you did wait. a lot in new mexico well I, I went to a camp as well where we learned how to load shotgun shells and you know shoot skeet and we did some 22 stuff and then my dad had some guns around my friend there was a lot of guns around you right. know and I, I ended up shooting guns here and there I, I never owned one recently i've been thinking maybe i should get one but then there's always the possibility that uh, you might have a bad day yeah so it doesn't seem like a good idea to me either uh, <laughs> no, i, I decided on a uh, on a bat i'm gonna get yeah. a bat i don't feel confident enough in my ability to protect myself uh yeah. with the gun yeah. And, yeah. and you know when i look at things statistically back to my rationalization uh agenda yeah. here it doesn't seem statistically in your best interest to have one around for your own safety um, no, no, that's for fucking sure. I read this article about, like, not that I'm depressive, but you know, you have your moments, right? But sure. In England, the the suicide rate went down dramatically when they changed the type of natural gas that was available in the ovens to a less toxic type of gas. <laughs> that, like, that that the number of people that just didn't follow through because it didn't work out. Uh, I mean, was. was like, I'm you know, picturing a... some awful macabre comic moments where some, you know, person in a desperate say, what the fuck is wrong with this gas? <laughs> exactly. But then then they live through that and yeah. the next day they feel OK. That's the point is that if you don't have the gun in that moment, you're probably going to get a night's sleep and be all right. It's a smart it's a smart move to put as many impediments in, in the way of uh, th- those kind of. <laughs> Self-destruction? I, 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 yeah. So wait, how old are you when the folks split up, though? Um, we were living in uh, Long Island, and they, they, they were divorced when I was six. Um, uh, so that was like 1974. Right. And then um, they tried to make it work again, and uh, that's when we moved to Dallas because my dad had the business opportunities. But as you could hear from my previous stories, those business opportunities <laughs> didn't lead to more uh, security and uh, predictability. So... Uh, my mom did the smart thing and let him move move out on his own. <laughs> and uh, with his umbrella uh, hats, yeah, with his umbrella hats, precisely, which did not fit in his new singles apartment. I can assure you, uh, he had he he was the kind of guy who had storage spaces everywhere. Like you know, we're just gonna, <laughs> hey, need to run out to uh, Plano for uh, an afternoon. Um, oh, oh, what's going on? Well, Got to check out the the storage space. I believe I've. Uh, uncovered a few gems that uh, and of course you know you just go pick out shit and we go to the flea market and he tried to sell it there oh god so he was like uh he just he was just uh like uh an like not even a good hustler really yeah he, exactly he was a marginal hustler <laughs> and, and uh anytime uh, there's a, a flea market involved yeah that's hit or miss and yeah. I- <laughs> not if that's where you're aiming if you're aiming there flea market, you're gonna come in nine times out of ten you're gonna come out happy because you know it's not like you're gonna make a killing one way or the right. other and if, right. if you don't sell it so, right. i mean it's not like you have a whole lot of stink <laughs> um but i do have a, a big affe- affection for uh for for flea markets and uh and people on the fringes i think uh for that reason yeah, well, I mean, you know, if it's part of your childhood, I mean, how are you not going to... Yeah. Like, you know, I, uh, there's moments where I used to love to go to the flea market. But my dad, there's a, like, there's part of my childhood where, you know, he... What did he do? No, my dad, he didn't sell at the flea market, but um, but I used to go to the flea market all the time because I was fascinated with it. All I remember is there was a doctor in town 
who my father knew and who was Jewish, we're Jewish, this guy was Jewish, and he used to sell Nazi paraphernalia at the flea market. And I could never quite quite connect it, but I was sort of found it kind of fascinating. Well, I mean, immediately I, I jumped to the notion that, like, if he can make a few bucks off these fuckers, that's sure. a little, that's a thorn well, it's in It's back the in side. the old days. It was the old days, and it was exactly. real stuff. It was like right. the real, like it was, it wasn't, kind of new there it's not like today where they're they're making the stuff new for the new <laughs> right, generation exactly. well and he may not he may have he may not have thought through thoroughly who he was selling to like who that's might true. want to collect this kind yeah, of stuff that's true um, that's true but my dad we used to like there was a period there where he he was into showing uh to dog shows so there's part of my life that there was there's dog shows involved so i have sort of a soft spot for it but i i don't go to them you know <laughs> well uh best in show was enough for me to yeah uh, there you go yeah yeah that's exactly what it's like so you're, you're moving around so you like where did you end up like going to high school dallas well i went to a lot of different um schools and you know in dallas at the time there was um busing and, and so um i was at, at um a elementary school in one area. And then I went to a middle school. We were bused to a, a middle school for uh, seventh and eighth grade. Yeah. And then I went to high school for one year um, at Hillcrest high school. And then we moved down to South Florida. Um, oh my God. As my mom got remarried. Um, and we went, how was to, that guy? Um, and we went to, uh, <laughs> and we went to uh, St. Thomas Aquinas high school. And it was a Catholic school, um, uh, but I had uh, I had an excellent time there. I, re- I really did. I thought uh, they're most notable for uh, their athletics uh, program, and um, uh, like Michael Irvin uh, went there. He was there when I was there, and yeah. um, uh, Brian Piccolo. Remember uh, Brian song yeah. and uh, Chris sure. Everett? Um, oh, and really? They all went there. They all went there, and. Um, I was I was not I mean as you might be able to tell by my size a, a, a stellar athlete but um I could I you did do soccer wrestle. you could do soccer oh wrestle I, okay yeah I wasn't fast enough I in fact I loved playing soccer when I was younger but when I at my first freshman year at Hillcrest I tried out for the team and I just started to grow I was always the shortest kid in class yeah. um uh, me and Richard Winfield, we would compete for shortest kid just about every year. But yeah, then, how's that guy? I wonder what he's uh, up to. He's great, actually. He's a lawyer in Dallas, and uh, okay. I think he does really well. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, I think better. I think he. I think he won. But he's the, a little um, lawyer in Dallas. I think he's bigger now, just like me, oh, almost good. average size. Um, but I had just started to grow and became, you know, wildly uncoordinated and uh, was so slow that they called me Flash, and that's when I thought, okay, I'm done with this shit. Right. And, yeah. um, I wrestled, but the one year I was not great at wrestling. I was kind of, you know, I was there for the exercise and I I did like the sport, but the one year I didn't wrestle, we won state. Um, Mm. it gives gives you some idea of my ability and the ability (laughs) of the, uh, you didn't drag him down, huh? I didn't drag him down. I wasn't there to wait him down. Are your folks still around? My dad's not. No, he passed away, uh, in 2005. He was uh, 63. But my mom um, is around and like she she's she's really the genesis of uh, uh, how I got into acting. She loved uh, taking us to the theater and going to Broadway and stuff growing up. 
Um, so really, but how long? So wait, just wait. So you're in Florida. Oh now, yeah, what, no. First, you... we were on Long Island. My dad was selling yarn. Um, yarn. Yarn, because he was from a small town in North Carolina that had a yarn mill, and so he was selling that yarn here in the city. So he worked out like he, this was his, he worked out an angle with the yarn mill where he grew this up. This was before the angling. So what happened was when they came up to New York, I mean, this I'm kind of putting this together. I don't know if this is true or not, but he comes up to New York to sell yarn, a legitimate business. You know, like the the, the um, his dad was the vice president of marketing there. He got, you know, got a job uh, there selling the yarn here in the city. He was working he was in like the a garment dr- district. And then he yeah. he was in the garment dr- district and got introduced to some people that he that he found um more colorful than the fabric he was selling. And um, uh-huh. uh, I think he, he, he was intoxicated by that life. You know, <laughs> my mom, meanwhile, um, uh, was like, why are we at a mob funeral? Um, that doesn't seem. Yeah. There, there, there's a lot, there's a lot going on there, but she loved uh, the arts, loved the yeah. theater. And so even after we moved to Dallas and Miami and Fort Lauderdale and stuff, she would still bring us back to New York to see plays. And, um, you know, I saw some phenomenal productions and she was also like one of my primary support, um, uh, engines when I was younger about performing. Did you, when did you first start doing the performing? I would say, I don't know if you remember my first grade interpretation of uncle sam during the fourth of july festivities i've read uh, about it i read yeah. some of the the many uh critical pieces on that yeah the yeah. smallest Most- next big thing i think it was called uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's 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 when the the what, what i discovered was my way you know of fitting in uh, going to these different schools was being a class clown so sure. i didn't have any problem humiliating myself in front of people which is one of the crucial things about being an actor it's there's you know there's not dignity in the act of doing it it's uh is mostly, that a class is that a class at nyu there's no <laughs> dig- dignity in acting you know getting over embarrassment that by is, making a well it's funny you say that because that is what people end up doing you know, there's not a specific class about it, but nearly everybody at some point or another makes themselves as vulnerable as possible. Often it's in the form of like being completely nude. Everybody has to get completely nude at some point in acting school right. just to bear right. their truth, you know, right. it's exhausting. Or, um, or just, uh, or the, the person that cries too much all the time, like no well, matter what that's they're me doing. now, but it wasn't me then. <laughs> <laughs> you were the nude guy. I, I, I wasn't yet the nude guy. Actually, I, I wasn't nude until, um, my first uh, paying job in the city. Um, oh yeah. That's <laughs> how it I, usually works. I, I was new for $212 a week. And uh, welcome was, kid. Welcome yeah. kid. Take it out. I was super excited about it. Um, until maybe two weeks into it when I'm standing backstage in a pretty cold theater thinking, what the fuck am I doing right now? Wh- which gig was this? This was, uh, it was, it was a kind of esoteric think piece on Japanese internment camps. Um, oh. And yeah, I played so the the token. So that was uh, worth it, right? That was worth it it. it. it absolutely was, and I'll tell you why. Okay, this is a great freaking transition. I didn't even see this one coming, but it uh-huh. was at the Vineyard Theater, and the Vineyard Theater on uh, Union Square, uh, fantastic theater. They hired me a couple of years ago to do a solo performance of this guy David Kale's play. It was a one man show, and I, so I played a bunch of different characters. It was an hour and fifty minutes long, but Jen Aniston and one of her producing partners came and saw that. And after they saw that, she was like, I want you to be a part of the morning show. We just have to figure out at what capacity. So me doing that $212 job a week has brought me to, you know, one of my uh, 
favorite roles that I've had uh, in a in while. In the same theater? The same theater. I did it in wow. the same theater, yeah. It was pretty it but, was pretty cool. But going back to your your mom, like so you started you were always doing stuff on stage throughout junior high yeah there wasn't an acting program at um at saint thomas as you know they put most of their money into the athletics Athletics, department yeah um but when i was i went to unc chapel hill and um and when i was town yeah i love chapel hill man that's a great town. have you worked there before yeah yeah it's it's a really great town but uh, I started out as like a business major because I don't know I you know I suppose that's what you were supposed to do at school and then well, with a with a such a, an impressive father as a role model to <laughs> of what's possible you know it was kind of I, and I haven't thought about this in in, in a while yeah. but his mom passed away the day that I graduated from high school and. Um, he had always vowed to her that because he didn't finish uh, Chapel Hill. He had like nine hours left or something, you know, like he had to take three or four classes, told her he was going to finish. She passed away when I graduated and he went back to summer school in Dallas so he could graduate and get his degree just before I started there. So like, you know, he and he was very proud that he was a straight A student. He had a little backpack that he gave me that I then used, you know, when I was wow. in school there. Yeah. So it, yeah, there were there's there was some charm to it, but but maybe that's why I got into business. Is uh, I mean, business, that was my first major. I thought well, some of us needs to know how to do it. Yeah, he got it done. Uh, he did. He graduated. Yeah. So you thought like you know, I'm just gonna like you know he didn't quite master it, but I'm gonna be yeah, the exactly. guy. Yeah, exactly. Let's give let's give this generation a second go. But you know, my first semester, it was clear that I was not going to succeed well uh, uh, as a business major. So I just started taking as many different kinds of classes as I could, and I took this one class called Oral Interpretation of Prose and Poetry. Um, that was taught by uh, Paul Ferguson. Uh, and he became like an immediate mentor to me. And I knew that th- these were my people. Like they, I-, I didn't know what this, what it was that we were doing with this art form. Nobody was gonna really pay to see this. Um, we did a production of James Joyce's short story, Clay, I think it was called. Um, that you know that it's not a, it's not a play so you have to spend half your time figuring out how to make it a play and then you use the the narration as a part of your like first person speaking it's weird stuff yeah but what wow. it allows you to do is think creatively about what kind of thing you're you know engaging in it's not just about like oh let me i've been dying to play annie um yeah. By the way, I, I have been dying to play Annie, and I'm not yeah. going to settle for Daddy Warbucks. So, <laughs> but um, I you know I made A's, and so I could be uh, you know a, a good student there while uh, taking these performance classes, and I became a communications major because I thought, well, who's going to go into acting, and I can use the communication major um, as my way into the uh, workplace, and. Yeah. I pretty soon I had taken all the performance classes in there. And then I started going to the drama department, taking classes there. And then the drama teachers there, Susanna Reinhardt, Didi Corvinus, they like convinced me that I could take some of the major classes there. So by the time I had finished, I'd taken every performance class at chapel that they offered. And you were doing productions as well. I was doing productions too. Uh, yeah. I think that, um, let's see, I did, uh, you're a good man, Charlie Brown. Uh, I did uh, uh, Burn This. I did uh, yeah. oh, The wow. Resistible Burn Rise this. of Arturo Ui, which I would later do. And I played Arturo Ui in that production, I'll have you know. But I would yeah. later do it with uh, Al Pacino, 
uh, playing uh, Arturo Ui off Broadway. So that was a nice full circle moment. So you, you did theater with Al Pacino? I did. That cast, can I tell you? Um, Steve Buscemi, Charles Durning, uh, John Goodman, uh, Tony wow. Randall, um, Paul Giamatti, uh, Linda That's Eman. crazy. Yeah, and I'm forgetting people. Uh, Sterling Brown, um, uh, Johnny Vitamilia. It, it was an unbelievable cast. Uh, wow. We had an absolute uh, ball doing it. I'm forgetting like 300 people that were in it. And But it was directed by this guy, Simon McBurney who ran this theater company in London that did some of the most incredible productions I've ever seen. They're called theater to complicity or, or complicity now or whatever. Yeah. Um, but so to get to work with him and to see somebody with that kind of mastery of the craft was pretty, it was killer. Yeah. Cause I think Pacino can still do it when he wants to. Oh, he, he works his ass off. I'll tell you that <laughs> straight up. I mean, he works his ass off uh, and he is invested in it, you know, yeah. and I, I can't say that for, for everybody, but um, it was when I watched was, him play, uh, like the when he did Kevorkian in that HBO movie. Oh, yeah, like, holy fuck! I mean, because like there was a while there where he was just sort of, hey, yeah, uh, yeah, but like when, <laughs> but you gotta then, figure like, at a certain point, nobody is giving him direction, you know, they're saying that's how you like to do it, sure, right? Um, right, because they're they're nervous. You, Why they well, yeah, of course. I mean, listen, yeah. if you do Dog Day Afternoon and Godfather Part Two in the same year, which I think he did, um, yeah. those two different roles that are so brilliantly executed, you know, fuck it, that's you that you that's more <laughs> you've had more than your share, okay? Yeah, you can, you can do, do whatever you, you want, whatever you want for the rest, yeah. but um, he, I don't think he is ever uh lacked in uh a continued commitment to uh, yeah you know, working it's just odd to see that generation you know becoming these old men and who kind of can still not do it yeah but okay let's 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 go back to so you finish at chapel hill then you go to tish and that's where you really lock in is that how it works yeah exactly and it it is a professional actor training program that focuses you on essentially taking the shotgun approach. Like we're going to teach you as many different skills. So when you enter the workplace, whatever you're offered, whether it's voiceovers, whether it's commercials, whether it's theater, film, television, yeah. whatever, you're going to be moderately prepared to get into it. And right. um, so, it, you know, it, it's also in New York city. So casting directors and agents would come and see some of the productions that you were doing. Um, they not, not just because they're looking for talent, but because some of the productions that, um, NYU was doing and Juilliard was doing and Yale was doing right. at the time. Like they, they were doing, uh, some of Tony Kushner's first productions of, uh, Angels wow. in America and Perestroika. I saw Michael Stuhlbarg, um, do Angels in America at Juilliard before it was out. Uh, really? And, uh, yeah. Um, uh, so, you know, there, there, there was a, a lot of opportunity for actors in those programs because of our proximity to being in New York. Then you also get to see, actors who you were there with as you know third year students go into the world you get to see them manage their careers so you kind of have uh an experience of being in the workplace and studying at the same time now but so because you're really like more than almost anybody i've talked to a theater guy i mean you you're a theater actor really for the most part. I mean, that's what you do when everyone, yeah. if anyone ever says like what happened to billy crudup it's like <laughs> he's probably doing a play yeah. right <laughs> well, that's all, almost always, uh, almost always the case. Um, but that's a choice you make. Yeah, I, it's you know, I don't know. You kind of go, you go to where you feel right. You know, where you feel. I 
I don't have wild ambitions in terms of like collecting money and things, you know, and like, uh, um, you make a living. I do. I, I've done, listen, I'll tell you what you want to know how I made a living. There are some things money can't buy for everything else. There's MasterCard. I, I've heard that. Let me tell you that that gave me my agency to do as many plays as I wanted to for a while, because it was a guaranteed sum, you know, like how, many, how long did you do that? Like a decade, 13, 13 years. And so, oh my God, can you, I mean, it, it really is again of, of the things to be embarrassed about. It was <laughs> mortifying to me. Um, but obviously I kept that ball rolling um, as long as I could. Um, but that's but, like, but that's like, uh, like that's, you know, that's a lifetime's worth of money. But I think it's interesting that you really, cause like going into this interview, there was this idea that like, all right, so you made, cause I'd read that you made the bread doing the, the commercial. And so you could choose what you wanted to do. But for some reason, I automatically thought, well, why isn't he in more movies then? Because you chose theater. Well, yeah, I do. I, I mean, I, I, it was always my plan to do as much of everything as I could. And the fact of right. the matter is I wasn't getting great parts in movies at a certain point. I was getting great parts on stage. And yeah. I went to where the great parts were because that, again, like, why would I refuse a great part? I mean, you know, the Vineyard Theater where I was nude first, um, where I did Harry Clark, um, my first thought at reading this piece was, no, Jesus, that's so much work. Why would anybody ever do that? That's exhausting. And then in the middle of the night, I wake up, how many people get the opportunity to open a one-person show in New York? Get off your fucking ass and get to the theater, you know? Like, that yeah. is, is typically my, my, my response. So the kinds of things that I got to do working with um, Martin McDonough, um, actually, Michael Stuhlbarg was in the production uh, with uh, Jeff Goldblum and Jelko Ivanic that we did of a play called uh, The Pillow Man. Um, right. Doing uh, The Coast of Utopia, which was a Tom Stopper play that, you know, um, was a three-part um, epic about uh, Russian philosophers um, at the turn of the, I don't know, 19th century or something. And it was spectacular uh, at Lincoln Center. And you, you would come see it. You would see the first part on Tuesday, the second part Wednesday, the third part Thursday, or you could come see them all on Saturday. Um, wow. Started 11 in these marathons, and every one of those marathons was sold out. So I was getting opportunities like that. Um, you won a Tony for that, right? I did win a Tony. I, I, I should get it, get, bring it. I should have brought all uh, to show you, just I should carry it with I me. I believe you. Um, yeah, just as evidence. Sometimes I'm looking around like, did I get a Tony for it? Um, <laughs> But uh, it's over there somewhere. Yeah. Just the experience of it. Yeah. Um, to me, that's the kind of life I wanted to lead. So, you know, if I was getting those kinds of opportunities in film um, to work with, you know, the, uh, the caliber of people that I, I wanted to work with, it's very likely I would have been doing more film. But, you know, the, but, but what do you think that was about? Why? Why don't you think that happened? I mean, it seems like you, you were like, I mean, it seems like you you can definitely carry a movie. Well, things come and go, you know, like, and you, you get uh, opportunities or somebody like me got a lot of opportunities early on um, based upon potential. And so, oh my God, so you were that, you, that first, you were in that movie sleepers. Yeah, man, that like that movie. So fucking heavy, man. Yeah. That was is. your first movie. Um, that was the first one that came out. I did an independent film before that called grind. Uh -huh. Um, Adrian Shelley, Paul Schulze, Amanda Pete. Um, and then I had a small part in a Woody Allen movie um, called Everyone Says I Love You. But yeah, that was right. that was the first big one that came out. And then I did uh, Inventing the Abbots, 
Pat O'Connor and Joaquin Phoenix and Jennifer Connelly. And then, uh, and then, so I got an opportunity to be a lead in uh, Without Limits about the runner Steve Prefontaine. Um, you were great in that. Oh, thanks, man. I, I, I still, I still, uh, when I jog, I still remember things that, you know, you were told in that movie. That's killer. That's, uh, <laughs> that was, that guy, I, I, the, the guy, Steve Prefontaine, he had an indelible image in my, in, in my memory because my dad loved him and had the cover of Sports Illustrated that he was on, on our countertop when I was younger. Um, you know, I must've been five or six or something, but this haunting image of him was with me the whole time. And so when I saw his name, I, it was with, you know, Robert Town who wrote Chinatown. It was being shot right. by Conrad Hall, um, Donald Sutherland and produced by Tom Cruise and uh, Paula Wagner. And so, you know, I was punching above my weight at that point. And if you don't deliver under those circumstances, you're unlikely to get those opportunities again until you do deliver in something, you know, it's just like from a financial point of view, uh, if they're, if they're mostly interested in like even almost famous, uh, that, that didn't do well at the box office when it came out, you know? So, like so the, the Steve Prefontaine movie didn't do great. No. Um, and, and almost famous didn't do great. Yeah. And so, you know, that, that's, that's some portion of it. Um, and some portion of it is that I would say no to things because I was doing a play and people were like, Jesus, everyone loved Jesus, son. Yeah. That, I, but we couldn't get people to see it. Um, it's like, <laughs> have you seen the cast for that? It's an unbelievable, it's like a, a really great cast, but we couldn't get people to the theater. Well, it's so, a heavy movie. I get it. And it was, it is. Movie, well, right? and it's, it, it's beautifully unconventional. Um, and, uh, I love that about it, but, but also too, you know, like, uh, yeah, I, at, at a certain point, if you keep saying no, because you're doing a play, people, they, they get pissed off at you, I think. And, uh, and then also 16 years ago, I had a son, so I wanted to be located here in New York as much as possible. And, you know, and that uh, was before the, that was before the commercials. That was, it was in the middle. I had, I had already had, I started, I think I, I got that commercial probably 97 98 but that's also like that that was also the thing you had to deal with is you know they the, the press was not too kind to you uh around your relationships you know what is there to say about that i mean the <laughs> i don't I, know <laughs> i i appreciate um people using uh trauma for their own click uh clickbait and fodder. right uh yeah. you know go for it i'm just not going to participate right um so there's there's not a whole lot to to navigate there, and I who can say what the effect of, of that is, you know? How is everybody now? Do you get along with her and the kid and everybody? Listen, we uh, all do the very best we can, but you know, I try. Listen, one of the reasons I, I don't comment, uh, well, there's like three good reasons. First yeah. of all, there are other people involved, and yeah. unless they no, want know. to talk yeah. about it themselves, why? The, you know, what the fuck am I going to say? Um, well, that's, that's right. Be you know, I've. I've learned that the hard way. Yeah. Yeah. I remember doing an interview early on and, and, and I had talked about my childhood. And so the writer summed it up as like, um, his traumatic childhood from, you know, like, going, and my mom read that as one of the first pieces and, you know, called me crying. And I was like, Oh mom, shit, we got to get, you know, like some understanding of, uh, of this, you how know, it's not Otherwise, this is going to be a tough, tough, tough ride. Well, see that, but that's interesting because now when you talk about it, the tone is different and the trauma is less. Uh, it, it it doesn't come off as tra traumatic because you put things into perspective. Well, and you, when you're older, I guess that happens. And you're successful. 
Well, that's that one of the things that I, in addition to being protective of the people in my uh, um, life that um, don't have a voice when I decided to do an interview, um, yeah. I, I was really protective early on of having any kind of public persona because my whole jam was going to try to be a character actor. So right. if you know shit about me, I'm not going to be able to be two different things in two different movies and have you think it. You should never, you should like at the end of the movie go, Oh, that was Billy Crudup. I didn't know that. Oh shit. Right. You know, that was going to be my whole, I just wasn't like great at it at the beginning. You know, I, I was giving like some kind of like good ish performances, but they were in lots of different kinds of things. So what they were, what the industry wants you to do is cultivate a personality at that point and become a star um, so that they can use you, you know, for their own nefarious well, purposes. That's, well, it's, but it's interesting because, you know, I think at that time, you're probably a little too attractive to be a regular character actor. Yeah, I had too much work done too early, and that was that was <laughs> a fault of mine. I thought it was going to be great for us. And this these cheekbones are uh, this is cartilage from you my. You know head. what I'm saying? And I can't. You're no, trust me. I, I, it was it, it was. You're no every you're no you're no Ned Beatty. <laughs> <laughs> I that brings up so many different memories. Oh my god, I love Ned Beatty. Holy shit. Oh, no, I wish I wasn't that baby. I'm the that baby. But no, I was, I had, you know, a, a very photographable, uh, is that the word? Photographable Photographic. Face. Photographic. That's the one we're looking for, Mark. Yeah. Um, uh, and so people, I, I was really aware early on of how people wanted to cast me. And I would look at some of these parts and say, I don't know how to play that guy. Like, you need somebody who can do a hero. And that, I, I, I'm, I, I need I need a different angle. Like I need, really, yeah. That, that, that those are the things that appeal to me. They're interesting to me. But that's the reason you would actually turn down leads because you know this guy. You know this guy comes out on top. He's the he's like well, a star. You know what? The, the, here's the thing with uh, heroes. Mostly when they're written in subpar material, is they don't have any character traits, so people can project shit onto them. Right. They don't have any inner monologue. They don't. Okay. What they have is the fierceness of their action. And the uh, the ability to to muscle through the obstacles with um, grit, grace, and a uh, little bit of sexiness. Um, and you know, I just I didn't know I didn't have that I didn't have that character in me. You know, like uh, I had different characters in me. That was come on, you you just didn't want to pretend. They're just paying you to pretend, Billy. Yeah, you but just... I know you got to do you got to go to where you're you're good at. It. I could play Steve Prefontaine because he was. He was fucked up and he was kind of a dick at times. You know, that's Flawed. an interesting. Yeah. He was yeah. a thorn in the side of the of the machine, you know, like so he was a bit of an antihero. And it's the same with Russell in Almost Famous. He's an antihero. You know, he makes some fucked up decisions. Um, you never know what his angle is. Well, that's and- interesting. Isn't that interesting? Is that the business, you know, the, you know, theoretically, the industry wanted to make you a leading guy because you look like a leading guy right. and you hold the screen like a leading guy. But some, you know, some something inside of you wasn't going to do that. Yeah, I didn't. I, I didn't. I, I was like, well, I mean, I can be a shitty one of those. Um, you know, if, if that's what you guys are looking for, but and then I've, you played I, a bunch of fucking like mildly shitty people. Yeah, <laughs> well, and those were the ones that I was more interested in. You know, like right. the characters in Spotlight, this guy in the Morning Show, um, and yeah, so many of the plays that I've done are are the ones who are wrestling with internal as well as external conflict. But I like the guy in 
Well, you just played. You were just a journalist in in that Jackie movie, but Spotlight. Oh, yeah. You were. Oh, you were the lawyer, right? I was, was a lawyer, lawyer, exactly. Right. Who, yeah, and and yeah, right, right. So that's that guy, a, a really fascinating story too. That guy, because I love that Tom, movie. Yeah, and that was a great movie. And Tom McCarthy. When I read it on the page, I was like, No, he just seems like a dick. I don't quite understand him. And he goes, Let me tell you the story of this guy. And it turns out that. Um, he had been negotiating all of these deals between the victims and the church um, in no small part uh, because he was uh, abused as a child. And he knew wow. that all of the systems were going to be um, obstacles in the way of them getting anything. So he was like set upon himself, listen, I'm going to get you 20 grand and a sit down with the bishop. And that's the best you're going to do anywhere. And Tom was like, so I'm not going to write that in any of it, but that's what's going to be going through you. So that, that makes him an interesting presence on the screen uh, yeah. because there's this whole mysterious inner monologue going on. And um, in fact, he actually had sent the paper names of these people before and the paper buried it. And they put that in the movie after they discovered it during inter uh, interviewing him where he was like, wow. I hope you're not going to make me the, vi the, the villain in this. Uh, let me tell you, you know, the, Right. That I made. So that's interesting because, like, you know, you think, like, it's kind of bizarre. Like, what effect do you think, like, because you've done you've done pretty well for yourself. It just it just worked out that way. But there's nothing. I don't know. Like, do, do you think that your father, your father's disposition and his mode of operating has made you more sort of attracted to these type of characters? I suspect there there's a whole lot a whole lot of different influences and that again like back to my earlier point I I I wanted to go for the most disparate kinds of interesting parts so I could build up as much facility so I could last for a long time so it's actually anti my dad what I wanted to do was work consistently and the way to do that um, as I was taught in school is build an arsenal. So you can deliver a lot of different things. And, the, and I didn't want to be pigeonholed because I knew that was, I'm, I would have no arsenal. Once I got older and the uh, cheekbones started to droop, uh, um, I was going to be dead in the water. So, so, okay. So, so it was anti your dad because you wanted to have some security in a business. Exactly. That was, and it, it was predictability, right? Which that comes was it, from exactly, which comes from being able to adapt to but but it's change. interesting though isn't it that the characters that you want to play are not they're not murderers they're just sort of slightly morally dubious yeah and uh and and, and working i would say that is interesting <laughs> <laughs> see look at that you're just trying to get close to him after all these years that's all <laughs> uh, i can understand that yep you tend to miss them when they're gone yeah but uh, but like I like the um, the character the Corey Ellison character is is a surprising character really because like you know you it's a, it's a great character you do a great job with it and I think um, because you you don't want to like him just because of what you project onto him and then as it as you know as the show goes on and you realize that you know he has a certain integrity to him somehow right uh, because of his own sort of problems which he reveals. Uh, I, I think it makes it a, a very unique take on that guy. I do too. When I read that, I, I had to call. I mean, I, I had an immediate response that was something like, what the fuck is going on with this person? How does somebody <laughs> yeah, yeah. imagine that that's an okay way to be in life? You know, so I would, 
my curiosity was piqued about who, what was happening underneath him. And that's always a great place to start creatively, um, where you got a lot more questions than answers. Um, and so I know when I'm reading a script and I pause to like, think about it and I can kind of visualize like moving around or I'm kind of daydreaming about this person and trying to see if there's any kind of authentic version of me that's in there that I can, I know that like, that's a character I should go towards because typically those are the ones where we get, we become most creatively engaged and, right. and it's rewarding, you know? Um, and so this was one where I was like, man, I've seen this fucking New York angler my whole life. And um, this guy who is just a room reader who you can't you put your finger on what his motivations are other, other than the display of his incredible social calculus. You know, like that's what he's capable of doing, managing chaos in real time. And there are people in New York like that. I mean, everywhere, you know, they're, right. they're the people who will sell you sunscreen when you're getting out of the train when on a sunny day. And then the next day they'll be there with umbrellas, you know, they're just, but it's, but, but this guy's got like, you know, once it, once he's trying to, you know, sort of connect with Reese's character, you know, he's offering up a vulnerability that seems genuine, even a, a, amongst the hustle, you know, even yeah. within the hustle. Well, I think it's a question because, you know, some of the, the greatest hustlers, um, can, uh, can project a kind of authenticity because again, they're reading people and they know he, Corey knew in that moment what she needed to feel safe in this uh, uh, transaction. And um, he had enough empathy for her as uh, a woman trying to establish herself and her moral agency in this environment um, that he could identify with her. Isn't that so, weird though? Like the hustle, like the idea of empathy in that type of character even when you look at this fucking current president that is it empathy or is it just a a mode of manipulation i mean i guess the empathy is there at the core but ultimately it its goal is not to empathize i think that's a great question and i actually that has been uh that was a source of ongoing conversation with uh with carrie and i think we we discovered a kind of uh moral ethic um that you know maybe his own uh uh, creation, but that really is about a more level playing field. And uh, perversely, the, um, the the reason it may be about a more level playing field is because he just wants to display his talent with as many people as possible. So he doesn't want to shut anybody out just for no good reason, just because they're a woman or just because they're, they're not like him. He wants right. the best people playing the game so he can show off how good he is in a way, you know, like, and by the way, that there, this is what some people argue is a meritocracy, you know, that uh, get everybody in the mix, you know, that competition will uh, promote the kind of creative productivity that will make us all thrive. Well, I mean, but that, but that's what you were talking about at the beginning of what one of the things that you like being part of is the ensemble-driven catharsis of a story, and now it's like getting kind of meta, isn't it? Well, so you think about then, yeah, exactly. Like then, think so. Put that philosophy yeah. in the in the body of a guy who's like a stone cold killer and like a, a wackadoo and um you've got a really interesting individual uh with yeah. a lot of power and uh a capacity to evolve and shift before your eyes that's fun to yeah watch. i thought i really was you know am amazed by the 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 unfolding of it. i like the show you know 
And my, you know, the woman I was seeing, who's not with us anymore, you know, she directed. I know. Let me tell you, Lynn. Yeah, uh, I I wanted to pass along my condolences. Uh, I had a very superficial interaction with her, but um, actually, after working on the morning show, she and I were talking um, about doing another show together that she was working on about a chiropractor called Posture um, that was being produced by Steve Golan who ended up passing away too. He passed away last year. Um, really? Yeah, it was just, it's just it's been heartbreak after heartbreak. Yeah, um, yeah. But I had I had uh, a lot of uh, um, affection for her, even in the, our most superficial interaction. Yeah, she was great. But I, you know, watching the show, I was surprised at how those, those you know, the, that, the, the whole issue of, of sexual impropriety and rape and what i i was kind of amazed at how it was all handled i mean it was really written beautifully the whole thing uh, carrie Aaron and uh she's responsible for uh, to me the creative application of a really complicated narrative yeah. which is we're all people uh, you can understand some motivations and you can't understand other motivations and the complexity of trying to um, manage a moment of redistribution of power and uh, justice for people who have been victimized is not going to be easy. And you're not going to get off uh, by just villainizing everybody. Uh, you're going to need to understand uh, the systems that create people, what goes into the, the, the kinds of things, and to offer that in a drama like this. I mean, they, they've got some incredible, to me, like tenacity and courage uh, between the producers yeah. and Carrie. But the Carrie is the one for me that I saw, you know, her and her writing team being able to put, it's one thing to think of that, but it's another thing to put it into action. That's some really sophisticated writing. Uh, oh, yeah. And, no, I mean, it's uh, hard stuff. It's hard stuff to, to continue to understand these characters and fight your own, you know, desire or lack of desire to empathize with them. Absolutely. Um, but like working with, with Reese, I mean, she seems like a real fucking pro. That she's, must be. Ex- that she, she's a pro of pros. I, you know, I would do my scenes where I was chatting away, doing my weird character and stuff. Yeah. And then I was ready for a fucking nap. I was exhausted. I was sweaty. I needed to change my clothes. And Reese, um, badass, is going in and watching dailies from the last one, reading scripts of stuff that are coming up, probably producing three other things on the side, um, right. and then coming back <laughs> after lunch to manage the you know next coverage. So uh, I, I have uh, she and Jen are doing something I couldn't do. Uh, Fun to work with them years. though. Fantastic, uh, because not only did they give me this opportunity, they encouraged. As you can see, I like to talk about acting and stuff and characters and shit, and and not everybody likes to hear about it. Yeah, <laughs> most people don't, but uh, they encouraged that in me. They wanted uh, me to have some insight, understanding, and um, agency, and uh, that 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 was incredibly generous from a personal point of view. But from like a you know cultural point of view, what they're trying to do w- with this show, I thought. Win, lose, or draw, this is an effort I can be a part of, hold my head up high, you know? Sure. Yeah, and the guy's a, a bonafide weirdo. Which yeah, is bonafide weirdo, and I, I definitely relate to that. And they didn't, here's the other thing, too, is they didn't bat an eye at that. They loved it. 
and that's 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 not an easy decision to make you know you 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 want to try to to again like it's fine if he's complicated um but can he really be a weirdo like and how far can i go with that weirdness and also like it, like sexually ambiguous in a way yeah exactly yeah <laughs> yes yes yeah and maybe predatorial you can't tell i mean there's so many and every time i would try because i would see it in the script and i often have this reaction i'll see something that i think it's very clear this is this is the what this is obviously what the story is going for and yeah. then we do the first table read and people will be like you really want to play him like that and right. i'm like oh no no i don't i just i was trying to do the job sorry what, what was i supposed to be doing my bad i just <laughs> i i come at things from angles that's i yeah. i apologize but and this was one where the first table read they were like I don't know who that weirdo is, but let's keep rolling with that. Um, like, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and, and I was kind of like ashamed inside. Cause I was, I was thinking I was just trying to do what you wrote. Right. <laughs> right. To me, it was so vivid, you know, <laughs> like I didn't, I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't trying to invent something like off the page, like right, right. riffing with my improvisation. I was word perfect, you know? Yeah. Um, that was, was your, inter- a, that was your interpretation of it. That's how you well, understood him. That's how I understood because how I, I did know I did know one uh, there's 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 three people that that influenced uh, the, the, the character um, and one of them it certainly had one of the um, bigger brains of any of my friends that I've encountered and when he starts to talk and when he goes into a tangent that involves some new insight that he's arrived at he giggles and he giggles to himself just at like the isn't my brain wild the way that yeah, it works? The discovery I mean, is, of it. The discovery yeah. of it is yeah. delightful to him, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I thought that would be a really disarming and interesting way for Corey to talk about his ideas, not dictatorial, <laughs> but right. isn't this crazy that the world is falling <laughs> apart and it has given us this opportunity now to totally reshape things, you know, like yeah. that, that to right. me um, yeah. was a really interesting uh, component to add to it. And so I was laughing from the beginning. And yeah. it, to me at that point, it had seemed obvious, but I had to back up and then tell them why after a while, because they were like, why does he laugh so much? <laughs> yeah. And did they, and they liked it. Loved it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah that, as long that, as you had, it, they did, it was like a quiz. They wanted you to have an answer. If you didn't have yeah, an well, answer. No question about it. Yeah. If you're going to be taking swings like that, you better have an answer. And it's exciting that you, you know, you got the nomination. That's exciting. Yeah. That was wild. Yeah. Well, what's going to, so what's happening? I mean, it's so fucked up because, you know, everything's on hold and we don't know when we're going to get the next season of anything. Yeah. You guys hear anything? We were two weeks into working when they shut us down. And, um, no, you know, it's like everybody else. Yeah. We're going to start working again in June. Okay. Well, it's August. Did we do it? Because I don't remember shooting it. They got to get the fucking tests that we can do in the morning and know in an hour. Yeah, I think that's uh, – hasn't that just been proved by the FDA, the uh, saliva test that the NBA and Yale um, uh, put together? I think that's that's one of those uh, that you can – it's pretty cheap and you can do a lot of them. Oh, so, really? Is uh, it working? Um, well, it's been approved and whether or not they can you know, uh, apply it, I don't know what kind of uh, resources they have or what kind of infrastructure is in place to manufacture them because it's going to be a lot of tests. But uh, I have a feeling – I think Apple's got the bread to uh... – 
put into getting a testing for uh, they do together. they've got to have a community though that is going to comply because the virus doesn't give a shit so yeah. if our community uh if, if it continues to circulate in the community i don't care how strong your fortress is um it's i it's shown a lot of evidence that it, it's going to get in there yeah fucking half a country full of morons i mean yeah just it, you know living in new york uh and being going going uh through this here in new york and obviously the first thing you want to do is try to understand it so you can protect the people around you you know explain yeah. it to you, my son and uh, tell him why right. our strategy is this and why we're doing certain things and um and navigate it um it collectively with his mom and you know your keep your all of that stuff it's it, so I was watching this shit all of the time, trying to understand it, getting as many updates. And the best that I can tell is the, the simple stuff that people are telling you works enough. Like change your behavior a little bit. Um, don't. Yeah. Um, wash your hands, you pig. Wash your hands. And by the way, I was germ forward before this. I was like, you know, let, let, you know, let them lick the sidewalk. It'll build up your immunity and stuff. Right, right. Like, yeah, that, that's good for the stuff that we knew about before. This one is new. That's what novel means. It's new. So yeah. we don't know how to deal with this one. So it's happening. We're managing yeah. this in real time. And, you know, masks being politicized and people like feeling infringed upon. It's just something I can't relate to because I've been in New York and I saw what was happening in our community before um, people started doing this shit. And I've seen what's happened uh, with the numbers since then. And um, uh, I've seen the protests. I've seen people gather. I've seen people at restaurants. And the fact that the numbers haven't continued to spike um, here gives me some reasonable, um, I think, understanding that this shit works. Like, it, it, it's not, we haven't cured anything, but we're able to do more because it's not circulating everywhere. And if yeah. you keep it from circulating everywhere, you can kind of do some stuff, but right. not not everybody is in on that game. Yeah, believe me, I'm living. I'm in Los Angeles. It's a fucking clusterfuck. It's like I no know, one's gonna it. no one's gonna take my summer away from me. It's like <laughs> yeah, literally. We're gonna take that... your future. You're you're gonna yeah. take your future away from me. Yeah, I don't want to be in my apartment anymore. I yeah. mean, you know, like, and and I don't have to be now in the same way. It 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 it, it really um. I, I, it's bouncing I back a little over there. Shit, yeah, no, well, we'll see what happens. I mean, it's something's, you know, you want to, I, I, look, man, it's, it's getting a little crazy and, uh, you know, maybe we'll get through it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I couldn't agree more with that sentiment and the way you express it is exactly how it feels in me on my best days. Uh, <laughs> Well, that is literally like, like my best days. In fact, I thought about calling you earlier today because I couldn't sleep last night. I couldn't sleep the night before. There, you know, there, there's just there's so many different things going on to say. Listen, I've heard your show, and you're you're insightful. You like to talk. You're articulate. I want to be there with you. And I didn't sleep much last night because this is a crazy fucking time. Can we reschedule this? But then I was like, I, you can't do that to him, man. That's uh, like no. you might as well just go in there and ramble. And look um, how and look how lucid and rambly you were with no sleep. It's great. <laughs> we got it. We got it all covered. Oh uh, God! Please cut it together like one of my. No, it's uh, great. Dude. Like to it do with my per performances. It was fun talking to you, man. I'm glad you did it.
Hey, great talking to you. I'll see you around. Maybe I, we can hang out when we get through this shit. I, I, I would love that. Okay, and, buddy. Uh, I love your show, man. Keep it going. Great talk. We were moving. We had a good clip to it. Good clip to it. Uh, once again, Billy is nominated for Outstanding Supporting Actor in a Drama Series at the Emmys this year. You can watch all of season one of The Morning Show on Apple TV+. Plus. Uh, I have no music for you. Just sort of take a deep breath in. Breathe out. In through your nose. Feel the universal hum. Can you feel it? Happy birthday, Lynn Shelton. I miss you. Boomer lives! So does Monkey and LaFonda and all the cat angels everywhere. Oh, no.